Chapter 20 of A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Mayfair Magician, A Romance of Criminal Science by George Griffith Chapter 20 Headley Siemens had all the courage of a man who had practically no morals, and, therefore, no scruples, either as regards himself or anybody else. As artist and student he had, of course, those emotions without which he could not have been either, but as the successful adventurer, the man of affairs, who had fought his way through the world with no more care for consequences than a tiger would have when charging through the jungle on to its prey. He was as absolutely fearless as he was unscrupulous. For all that, however, he was forced to confess to himself, as he thought over the extraordinary, nay, the unheard-of proposition, which the princess had made to him, and which Dr. Isar Ramal had confirmed, that he had been suddenly brought face to face with something which might well make the boldest man hesitate. It was the unknown, the intangible, the mysterious, and, if the princess had only spoken truly, it might also be the terrible. At first he had been inclined to look upon the whole affair as some elaborate piece of jugglery, possibly the result of a conspiracy between Kara Natiev and the principal of the institute, but he had also found himself, not a little to his annoyance, wanting to believe that it was so, and this suggested a suspicion, if not of fear, at least of a certain reluctance to face the ordeal that had been proposed to him. Then, too, the more he thought about it, the more clearly he saw the absurdity of such a supposition. It was impossible for him to rank a man like Isa Ramal, who had over and over again given proof of strange powers, for which human language had scarcely any name, with the vulgar impostors of spiritualism, theosophy, and Christian science. He had completely proved his utter carelessness of money, and even his servant and humble assistant, Ram Das, had quietly refused a splendid bribe for the answer to a single question. And it was equally absurd to suspect the princess. She had everything that rank, beauty, and wealth could give her, saving only, perhaps, the gratification of love and ambition. Yes, perhaps that was the secret and the explanation as well. He knew that her ambitions were boundless, and that she would hesitate at nothing to satisfy them. She was just outside the magic circle of royalty, and so it was impossible for her to share a prospective throne with one of the rulers of the nation. True, many women of her rank had contracted left-handed unions with reigning princes, and had influenced their counsels to no small degree, but he knew that Karanatiev was not one of these. She would be Caesar's wife, or nothing. But there were other Caesars than those who sat on thrones, and he was one of them. No crowned monarch in Europe really wielded the power, absolute and irresponsible, that he did. Was this perchance the reason for that strange challenge of hers? He had to confess to himself that the idea thrilled him. He had, of course, long outgrown the commonplace vanities of his sex, but he would have been more or less than human, 
if the thought had not at once pleased and tempted him. Indeed, if it had not been for Grace Enstone, and that wild, unholy, and yet overmastering passion, which her more gentle beauty and tenfold stronger charm had inspired him with, he might well have come to the conclusion that of all the women he had ever met, Karenatiev, with her wonderful beauty and brilliant genius, was the most fitting helpmeet for such a man as himself. Still, in spite of all, the idea of this strange adventure in the unknown regions of forbidden knowledge fascinated him, even by reason of the hidden terrors that it might reveal to him. Besides, he had accepted Karenatiev's challenge, and given his promise to Izaramal. If she did not fear to look upon that mystery of mysteries, an unveiled human soul, why should he? And yet he was forced to confess that, when he got into his brougham late that afternoon to drive to the Institute, he found himself in a condition of nervous anticipation, which was entirely strange to him. He was shown into the director's private sitting-room, and, as he and the princess rose to receive him, he fancied that he could detect some subtle and yet unmistakable change in the lovely face which looked up at him. It seemed as though some impalpable and yet impenetrable mask had been removed. He seemed, as it were, to look down deeper into the depths of her eyes, as he had never done before, and there was a new light in them, which, as he thought at the moment that he took her hand, might perchance be the reflection of that soul which she had challenged him as it were, to compare with his own in all its unveiled nakedness. Her expression, too, had assumed an exquisite softness that was quite strange to him. In short, never had Karenatiev seemed so dangerously desirable in his own eyes as she did then. "'And so, Mr. Siemens, you have really decided to keep this strange tryst of ours,' she said very sweetly, and with a smile that might have shaken the resolution of an anchorite. I suppose you have recognized that, if the experiment is carried through, you and I will know each other as no two human beings ever did before. Is that not so, doctor? She continued, turning towards him, to Headley Seaman's immediate relief. It is, replied Ramal in his smooth, even, impersonal tone, and I think it right to warn you once more that if you have the strength to carry the experiment through, you will have seen what no eyes save those of the adepts have ever seen. You, Mr. Siemens, for instance, cannot have forgotten one lesson which you learnt, doubtless among many others, in the days when, in the land of knowledge, you sought that which was better than wealth. And what was that, doctor? interrupted the millionaire sharply. It is true that I did learn many lessons there. Which of them are you referring to now? That which teaches that knowledge without strength is worse than passion without judgment. He who knows more than he has the power to use and control may be compared to a madman on a throne, and you are about to learn a portion of that forbidden lore whose possession has ere now meant misery for the strong and madness to the weak. Now, remembering and knowing so much, are you, Princess, and you, Mr. Siemens, still prepared to acquire this knowledge and take the consequences of it? For my part, yes, replied the Princess, quietly, 
although with a just perceptible twitch of her lips. After what you have said, I would give my soul, if I have one in the ordinary sense of the term, to get such knowledge as that. And you, Mr. Siemens, the doctor went on, turning towards him, are you still of the same mind? Do you, after what I have said, feel that your mental vision can be trusted to look into the depths which may be revealed to you in a human soul, and that, too, the soul of a woman? Hedley Siemens looked sharply at the princess. Her eyes met his with a frank, almost defiant challenge, as though they would say, Surely what I dare, you will dare. By some strange process, which was quite as little understood by himself as it was by the princess, and possibly also by Dr. Ramal, the challenge at once produced a complete change of mental front in him. So far the mystic and the artistic portions of his nature had been, as it were, in the forefront of his being, but now they receded instantly, and the man of affairs, the hard-headed, cold-blooded, keen-sighted soldier of fortune, who had never yet known a defeat, took its place. I am perfectly prepared to go through with the experiment, whatever its results may be, he said in a voice so changed that his hearers involuntarily looked up at each other. But after what you have said, Dr. Amal, I think it is only fair that I should say something more. You are asking me to believe without inquiry what, from my point of view, may well be incredible. And I tell you frankly that I will not believe it, unless it is supported by just such proofs as I should require before I went into any ordinary commercial scheme. But surely that would be impossible, said the princess, in a somewhat sharper tone, which had a note of reproof in it. If there is any truth in this, it is a miracle, and miracles are not to be tested by any ordinary rule-of-thumb methods. Some faith, at least, must be necessary. Pardon, your highness, interrupted Izaramal in his quiet, passionless voice. Here there is no question save only of courage. Belief will not be asked for. It will be compelled, provided always that your courage endures to the end. However, we will take that for granted. And now, I think, you are going to say something else, Mr. Siemens? While he was speaking, the gold king's lips had tightened, and the black eyebrows had come together over his keen green-blue eyes. He had an intuition that he was being put into a somewhat uncomfortable corner. He possessed that genius for reading men and women, which had been the principal factor in the making of his own fortunes. At the same time, with all his great talents and his capacity for acquiring out-of-the-way kinds of knowledge, he was constitutionally incapable of believing anything that could not be proved according to the rules of human science. "'What I was going to say is this,' he said, in just such a tone as he would have used in an ordinary business interview. "'This experiment is something so completely outside human experience that I really must assert the right to that skepticism which must be exercised by every independent observer.' In other words, I cannot and will not bind myself to accept anything that I may see this evening as the truth, no matter how wonderful it may seem, without some proof which appeals to my judgment as conclusive. At the same time, he went on, rather more quickly, thinking that the princess was about to interrupt him again, 
I want to be as honest with you as I know you are with me. So far as you have gone, I take it that Jenner Halkeen found you, by one means or another, a million sterling to develop the scheme. Now, I should like to say, before I have seen anything of its working, that I simply want to be convinced that it is really practical, and I take it that the shortest and easiest way of getting that proof is to make the experiment which the Princess Natiev has been kind enough to propose to me. Granted that only, and then, well, such ability as I possess, and every sovereign that I own is at your service. In other words, I shall be with you heart and soul, and checkbook. Is that good enough? Isa Ramal's eyes looked across at him, with a glance which he had some difficulty in meeting steadily, and his lips moved until they shaped themselves into a smile that had just a suspicion of mockery in it. Then, as he kept his silence, the princess said with a note of elation in her voice, "'I knew that you would say that, or something like it, Mr. Siemens. I knew you would, and that is why I made the challenge in the first place. I believe, if you don't yet, and I also believe, that you will be convinced. And then, fancy, what a glorious prospect there will be before us. I mean, of course, those who devote ourselves to the work of the Institute.' We can be masters and mistresses of the world, since we shall be able to control those who govern it without their knowing that we can do so. Just imagine what one might call a syndicate of soul-searchers finding out the inmost thoughts of all the statesmen, and, perhaps, even the monarchs of the world. Yes, it is a grand idea. We could make a despot do what we thought he ought to do, and a constitutional minister advise his sovereign not according to his own opinion, but ours. It would be just as easy to persuade the other gold kings of the world to play completely into our hands, and to make fools of themselves just when they thought they were going to achieve their greatest triumphs. Yes, it is a glorious idea, and if you can only find yourself able to believe in it, she went on with a suspicion of a caress in her voice, I don't think any one could see more splendid possibilities in it than you could. "'My dear princess,' replied Siemens, returning her glance this time quite steadily, "'I haven't the slightest doubt about it. "'Only prove the possibility to me, and, to begin with, "'I will gamble ten millions on the practical working out of the scheme, "'and that, I think, the director will consider a sufficiently sound guarantee of my good faith.' "'Perfectly,' said Dr. Ramal. That shall be a bargain, provided that you remain in the mood to complete it after you have been convinced. There is only one condition that I am obliged to make before we go any farther, but I don't think you would find it a very difficult one. Yes, and what is that? he asked. It is that you shall never make any attempt, direct or indirect, to discover the construction or method of working of the apparatus, with which the experiment will be made, that, together with the story of its invention, must remain unknown to all, save those who know it now. Any attempt to penetrate that secret would entail the most serious penalty upon any one who tried. <laughs> My dear Ramal, replied the millionaire with a laugh, which the princess thought a trifle harsh, pray don't trouble yourself about that as far as I am concerned. Really, I don't care who invented the apparatus, or how it works, as long as it does work. 
that is, as long as it enables the operator to, as the princess put it so forcibly to me, look upon an unveiled human soul to read the most secret thoughts and passions of a brother or sister human being. All that I want is conviction, and as I have still preserved an entirely open mind on the subject, no, I will say no more than that, since I would rather be convinced than not, I think you will admit that you can scarcely have a better subject than myself. Then, said the director, rising, if you will come with me, you shall be convinced, but even now I think it only right to tell you that you should prepare yourself for what may prove to be a very considerable shock, I mean a mental and nervous, as well as what I may call a moral one. And, I need hardly say, princess, he continued turning towards her and speaking rather more gravely, that this may possibly apply to your highness even more than to Mr. Siemens. <laughs> Thanks for the warning, doctor, she laughed in reply. But I am afraid it will have to be wasted. I am not in the habit of taking risks that I am not prepared to go through with, and, of course, if I am ready to dare the ordeal, there can be no question about Mr. Siemens. "'Of course there can be no question of that,' said the millionaire, going to the door and opening it for her. "'What you dare, I dare, princess. In fact, I may say that the prospect of making your more intimate acquaintance is a quite irresistible temptation.' She did not reply in words, but as she passed out of the door, she turned and looked him full in the eyes, with a glance which told him more than many words could have done. <laughs> then, laughed Isar Ramal softly, you shall both see what you shall see. And now, follow me, please. He led them down a long passage, heavily curtained at both ends, into an apartment which neither of them had ever seen before. It was an eight-sided room, about twenty feet in diameter, with no windows or other means of admitting natural light. The walls were draped with dull red and gold embroidered hangings, evidently of oriental workmanship, and the roof was similarly hung in a fashion which gave the whole room the appearance of a splendidly appointed marquee. A cluster of electric lights hung from the center of the roof, and just filled the room with a soft clear light that made everything distinctly visible without making its source all that conspicuous. There was an oval table in the center of the room, and on it stood a somewhat complicated series of apparatus. At either end was what looked like a highly elaborated stereoscope, with two eyepieces composed of almost priceless lenses magnifying several thousand times. Between them were connected rows of vacuum tubes, something like those which are used in the production of the X-rays. All these were connected with the stereoscopes, and each other by slender, insulated wires, and in front of each pair of lenses was a round mirror, about ten inches in diameter, intensely bright, but shining with a faint blue luster, instead of the silver sheen of ordinary mirrors. There appeared to be other portions of the curiously complicated instrument underneath the table, as other wires led from the mirrors and tubes over the edges and possibly down through the floor. There was an armchair at either end of the table, and when they had taken their places, Isa Ramal said, You will be good enough to put your eyes to the eyepieces before you. So. 
look straight through at the mirror. Now give me your hands. Let your arms rest on the cushions. Yes, that will do. He went on as he joined their hands, right to left and left to right. And now I am going to put the electric light out. Not because this is anything like a dark seance, but because you will have ample light to see what you are going to see without it. And now, one word more. He continued speaking gravely, almost solemnly. If either of you wishes to end the experiment, you can do so at any moment by simply unjoining hands. He turned off the cluster and touched a little switch on the table. They heard a very soft purring sound coming apparently from nowhere. The mirrors began to glow with such a light as neither of them had ever seen before, and the next instant they began to experience a totally different form of consciousness, somewhat, as it were, of a separate sense, totally differing from the ordinary senses, and yet most strangely illuminating and exalting all of them. Neither spoke, yet each seemed to hear the other's voice, low and distinct, and saying unutterable things. Their eyes were fixed on the glasses, yet they could see each other with more than a physical distinctness. Their faces seemed to grow semi-transparent, and to become enormously magnified. Then their brains came into view, and they could see them working. The blood circulated, and the atoms composing the cells revolved about each other with varying but absolutely rhythmic motion and presently their revolutions began to have a definite meaning for them, as the motions of a marvelously complicated machine would have a meaning for a skilled engineer. After a few seconds, as it seemed to him, Headley Siemens felt the princess's hands begin to tremble and twitch. Then they were suddenly wrenched away in spite of his effort to retain them, and a low cry, which sounded to him like the voice of a soul in torment, ran through the room. Enough! Enough! I believe I have seen into hell. Isa Ramal instantly switched on the electric light again, and Siemens saw the princess, her face gray-white, her jaw dropped, her eyes staring blankly at the ceiling. She was lying huddled in the chair, her arms hanging down, and her head drooping onto her right shoulder. His first thought of the moment was one of wonder that anything so exquisitely beautiful could have so instantly become so repulsive. End of chapter 20